Thank you for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I am extremely fortunate to have been able to conduct the interview you're about to listen to. I alluded to it a little bit in my last episode on the Shaw, that my father went to high school with somebody who was caught up in the Iran hostage crisis of the early 80s. Well, my father reached out to his friend, Donald Cook, who also spent a career as a foreign services officer for the U.S. State Department. What you'll hear can be considered as something of a sequel to the biography on the Shaw. Mr. Cook's story picks up immediately after the Ayatollah has seized power. He then brings us through the events that led to him becoming a hostage, and goes on to offer us some geopolitical advice for the future of U.S.-Iranian relations. And just an FYI, because this is an interview, the audio is going to be a little bit different. I had to record it differently and use a couple different microphones, so just so you know, it's not going to sound the same as some of my recent episodes have sounded. And so, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Donald Cook. Don Cook, thank you so much for coming on to Written in Blood History. This is actually uh, the first interview that uh, we're doing here. Normally, this is just uh, me talking by myself into a microphone here. But uh, so you're a brave soul for being my first uh, interview on the show. <laughs> welcome. Uh, you're welcome. So I, I really appreciate it. Um, just to give uh, the listeners a little bit of background here as to why I'm interviewing you. When I told my father that I was doing this episode, he brought up that he went to high school with a guy named Don Cook, who happened to be one of the hostages um, for that was taken hostage for 444 days in Iran. Um, so I was pretty blown away by that. And he got me in touch with you. Um, and so here we are. And if, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us a, a little bit of, of background to yourself, uh, what you did, how you ended up in the state department. And then from there, how you ended up in, uh, in Iran. Yeah, I was actually a fairly unusual case. So, uh, I went to St. Joseph High School with your uh, father, who was a good friend, and then went on to Ohio State University, where I studied, of all things, geology. And um, I applied for the U.S. Foreign Service, which is a kind of a process. So uh, you have a written exam, you have an oral exam, uh, you have uh, medical checks, etc. And um, it turns out at the time, this was... 1978, that uh, they were actually looking for people who had science backgrounds and some experience and some interest in international affairs. So I had a leg up on some of the other people who were studying political science or law or history, things like that. Then I joined the Foreign Service in the fall of 78, and uh, they gave us a limited list to choose from and I did not have a really good, strong foreign language. And the language opportunities were Spanish, and there were a lot of those. Uh, there were four slots available in, uh, in, uh, Tehran, in Iran, and then one in, for Arabic and one for French. A fellow was going to end up going up to, uh, going to Beirut. And uh, I decided that uh, Iran sounded a little bit more interesting than Beirut. And uh, at the same time, I was dead set against learning Spanish and spending my career on a visa line uh, in uh, South America. <laughs> so I, I ended up getting Farsi language training and getting ready to go to Iran. Now, I picked the assignment when just about the time that the revolution was starting in uh, in the early, late, late summer, early fall of 78. And at the time, the general feeling in Washington was that this was going to blow over just like any of a number of previous uh, demonstrations and uh, actions against the Shah had in the past. And I remember specifically uh being uh, let go of class one time to attend a briefing of uh, senior people. And they had one of the great Iran experts at the time. And uh, they asked him what he thought the probabilities were. And he said, well, 50% probability that uh, the Shah will continue on, put down the demonstrations, and that'll be the end of it. Maybe a 40% probability that the Shah will 
maneuver towards a constitutional monarchy and slowly pass power over to a European-style democratic government, and then maybe a a 10% chance that uh, everything will collapse, uh, the Shah will be overthrown, and there'll be some kind of radical government put in charge. And so I'm sitting in the back row, and I'm thinking, uh, yeah, that all sounds pretty pretty reasonable. <laughs> what I didn't realize at the time is that the guys in the front row, you know, the generals and the assistant secretaries and the, and the advisors to the president and whatever, they're all sitting there, and they're saying, are you kidding? There's a 10% chance that the shock could fall? And they were panicked. I mean, they were re- it really changed their whole perception of how we were going to approach the, uh, the Shah and his regime. And, uh, and particularly, this was in the Carter administration, where their grasp and, uh, and foreign policy capability was not as good as one would hope. And so they were actually, you know, pulling in different directions. So you had one group in the Carter administration that was real strong behind the Shah and another group that was pushing human rights. And uh, so that was really the background to my studying Farsi language and getting ready to go out to Tehran. So before you got there, um, you obviously didn't know what was going on in the heads of these generals who were sitting in the front row. Did you have, you didn't have any sense that you were going into some sort of hot zone. You obviously didn't know you were going to be taken hostage nearly as soon as you got there. Um, But did you have a sense that this could be a little bit dangerous? Yeah, I did. Um, So I started language training in, uh, in November roughly. And uh, the Shah was still in power then the revolution happened in February, and while the Carter administration was trying to establish a dialogue and a relationship with Iran, uh, things were falling apart in the country in general, and uh, it was it was pretty clear that uh, that the new government at least had a fairly large faction, if not a dominant one that was completely anti-American. And I remember later on that, uh, that spring, early summer, my mother was freaked out when she found out that I was going to <laughs> Iran. I mean, this was not in, this was not good for her. Uh, I couldn't uh, imagine why. Heart condition. <laughs> yeah. But uh, at, at one point after Christmas or so, uh, she chilled out completely. So in, in January, in February, March, I'm talking to my dad, and I said, just out of curiosity, um, why is mom, you know, sort of so uh, accepting of, of my going to Tehran at this point? And he said, well, your mother has come to the conclusion that if it wasn't really safe, the State Department wouldn't send you. Mm. And at that point, I broke out laughing. (laughs) And my father looked at me and I said, well, Dad, please do not disabuse her of this particular illusion. (laughs) And then what I did, at at that point, the the embassy had already been taken over once. The embassy was taken over on uh, uh, February 14 of 78 and was held for about a uh, a day or two. And uh, then one of the Marines was taken off campus, and he was held for about a week before they got him back. And so in this, you know, late spring talk I had with my father, I said to him that uh, if at any point um, I'm taken prisoner or taken captive or disappear or whatever, I want you to raise hell. I want you to make noise. I don't want you to have the State Department tell you that, oh, if you guys stay quiet and, you know, lay back, we're working on it. Everything will be all right. Uh, That sort of thing. I said, no, I I want you to make a lot of noise. I want you, the State Department is going to be willing to just leave me behind uh, if, uh, if, 
there isn't public pressure on the administration to resolve the issue. So yeah, I had a pretty I had a pretty good idea that there was at least uh, some some uh, risk involved in heading out there. Wow, that's incredible! And how old were you so when they put you on a plane and send you to Iran? How old were you at the time? Twenty four. <laughs> My goodness. So at the age of twenty four, you get into Iran. You're working for the State Department. Did you have a sense of what the overall goal was for the State Department during this? Because by the time you get there, the Shah's gone. The Ayatollah had they had the referendum yet uh, that changed the constitution. By the time you got there, uh, if not, uh, it was a foregone conclusion that okay. uh, that it was going to succeed. Yeah, because it was ninety eight percent, right? That it, yeah. that it passed yeah. by. Um, so, did you have a sense with all of that going on? Did the, was there like a stated mission objective for you at the State Department and, and overall with this with the embassy as a whole? Yeah, uh, great question. This was um, kind of funny because, uh, in general, the idea was that we were going to try to maintain a relationship and and sort of uh, transition to the new regime. And and I was part of that effort. What they did was they took everybody who had been in the embassy during the time of the Shah. And they were rapidly transferring them out and replacing them with new people. And so out of the 52 hostages, there were really only a handful who had been serving in the embassy uh, at any time during the Shah's regime. And uh, I remember one time I was with the political counselor, the acting political counselor, Anne Swift, and we'd gone out to buy bread at a local bakery. And I, I asked her, I said, what are we doing here? I said, this is really, this is not safe. Uh, and I don't see any real reason for us to have a large embassy. I could see us closing this, this massive compound down and having a half a dozen people in an office building on the 10th floor where no one can get to us. But I can't see having this uh, this big building and this big presence. And her answer was salt too. And once again, I broke out laughing. I said, "You got to be kidding!" And this was the strategic arm, the second strategic arm limitations talk. And what she explained was that the administration wanted to maintain a relationship with Iran so that we could keep the CIA listening posts in Capcan and Bashar on the Caspian Sea, which monitored Soviet missile launches. So oh, we I could see. monitor Soviet missile tests. And and I, I really, well, I, I laughed. I said, you got to be kidding. You are absolutely kidding because there's no way that they're going to, that the, the new government, however friendly we are or whatever, that they're going to allow us to, to maintain those facilities. I mean, we might limp along on a, you know, reasonably professional cordial basis, but, uh, but yeah, uh, no, uh, opening up Capcan and Bashar again and keeping them operated that that's not going to happen. And she said, well, that's the objective. And so do you think there was a fear that um, not only losing that strategic geopolitical position, was there a fear that the Ayatollah might cozy up to the Soviets? Well, and this was, I mean, this played into what was, um, what they were thinking about in terms of reopening Capcan and Bashar. So the Soviets had sort of stayed out of the revolution. They sort of stayed quiet. I mean, and they're the neighbors, okay? And what the Washington thought was, was that the Ayatollah and his crew are going to realize that the godless communists next door are a much bigger threat than the decadent American capitalists halfway around the world. And um, that just proved not to be the case. So I was going to ask you about reality versus expectations. 
Um, I think you've given us a pretty good idea of the State Department's reality versus expectations. I'm curious about for for yourself. Um, you know, obviously, your 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 poor mother. <laughs> she thought the State Department um, wouldn't send you anywhere that was dangerous. You knew that wasn't the case. I'm guessing your father probably knew that was the case. You so you know it's it's a dangerous place to go, and you get there. I'm, I'm curious, was it as, as as volatile situation as you thought it was going to be, or was it worse? Um, like, could you could you see the the coming disaster? Uh, yeah. Well, in fact, it was funny because uh, even before we left, we had somebody I like to refer to as the unnamed consular officer who visited us while we were in language training. And he said to us that the place is falling apart. It's going to be a disaster. You guys are walking into a huge problem. Uh, to me, it is clear as standing in the middle of train tracks, watching the headlight on a locomotive coming straight at you. Okay. Those were his words? His words, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then uh, one week later, I won't mention his name, there was another uh, consular officer uh, who came back from uh, Iran who went to meet with us who said, oh, yeah, this other guy is a crybaby and a ne'er-do-well and whatever. He's really exaggerating what went on. And uh, no, you know, things are actually much better and they're going to get better and whatever. Well, it turns out the nameless consular officer was just that. I mean, he had some career somewhere and I never heard from him again. <laughs> the guy who told me that uh, everything was going to be okay eventually became an assistant secretary, and an ambassador. Okay, so now walk us through, uh, what, what was the time difference between um, you arriving in Iran versus when the students stormed the embassy? I arrived in July, which actually made me one of the longer-serving people uh, in the embassy by the time the, um, the uh, takeover happened on November 4. And I was in the consular section, so I was issuing visas. Now, because of that previous takeover, as a kind of a punishment, the embassy closed the consular section and was not open for routine visas. The one thing that the government of Iran pressured us into was to open up for student visas because there were, were a, a large number of uh, students studying in the United States. Some had gone back, needed their visas renewed. Others uh, had their acceptances from university and uh, needed the visas to go start. And uh, it was a stroke of luck. I'm, I'm not sure why the uh, acting consul general made the pick, but... Um, all but one of the other vice consuls was stuck with doing student visas, and I was picked to handle special cases, uh, referrals from the foreign ministry, uh, medical cases, uh, referrals from other parts of the of the embassy, etc. So I was I was actually doing stuff that was pretty interesting while these other guys were listening to. Uh, College-bound students lie to them about their grades and uh, and uh, and try to weasel their way into uh, half-operating uh, colleges and universities <laughs> in the United States. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I wasn't really planning on, on covering this topic too much, but um, it, it just popped into my mind that the students, the Iranian students that would have been abroad, the allowance of, of people to come in and out of Iran, I feel like that's very much a product of the, the type of government that the Shah instilled. Um, and his father, uh, Reza Khan, he, was, he wanted that Western education for his country or that, that he wanted them to be a Westernized country. Um, and so did you get a feeling that when the Ayatollah took over, he was calling people back home, uh, in a sense. The um, there certainly wasn't the support for it, and uh, sure. the Shah himself uh, clearly was patterning himself at uh, after Ataturk in Turkey. 
that was sort of his vision of how he was going to change his country. A kind and, of a Republican uh, style leader in a sense, right? That was what he was eventually hoping for. And um, what was interesting though, was how I, to give you one example of how um, just completely sucked in the, uh, the U S government establishment was I, I was going through materials and I read an interview uh, that uh, I read a report of a meeting between uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and the Shah. And it was um, laudatory doesn't even begin to describe uh, Brzezinski's description of his interaction. I think fawning would have been a better description. And, <laughs> I'm reading this and Brzezinski's supposed to be a tough guy, smart guy. And I'm thinking, you know, are you kidding? I mean, yeah, okay. The Shah is a, is a, 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 a very reasonable, intelligent guy, et cetera. But um, the kind of description that Brzezinski is giving of how impressive the Shah was, I don't think was anywhere close to reality. But that was that was the feeling in the United States at the time. Also, too, the other, the other thing that that often gets lost is if you remember the oil crisis, or you don't, your dad will. The oil <laughs> crisis in the early seventies, the long gas lines. Yeah, I, I've heard about them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that was precipitated by the Iranians, and the Iranians were the ones who were big on increasing the price of oil. It was only later that the Saudis realized that they could use an oil embargo to try to pressure the United States to lean on Israel to back off on its support of Israel. But the actual price increases uh, in oil in the 70s were largely the Shah's doing because he had limited oil resources, whereas the Saudis, they could just pump as much oil as they needed to at whatever price in order to, to earn the money they had. So the Shah was not our friend uh, in that in any real sense. So now if you could just walk us through the, the moments that led up to the storming of the embassy and kind of what was going through your head as all of that craziness was precipitating. I mean, it, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you never think you're going to be in that situation until you are. So I'm curious what, what your thoughts were in those moments and what that was like. Yeah. And I, um, well, and, and given this description I've just given you of how the locomotive is headed on the, uh, down the tracks and we're staring at it, why did I stay? And the answer was is that I was misled. I was under the I was I, I wasn't under the impression. I was told that we were going to defend the embassy. And so, given that as an assumption, the what I envisioned happening is. The embassy would be attacked. We would defend it. We would get some kind of support from the Iranian authorities, weak maybe, but whatever. And uh, there would be an outcry and we would all be kicked out. And so where I got caught was believing the people who told me that, that the embassy was going to be defended and treated like the sovereign territory that uh, it it appears to be. So um, when the Shah entered the United States, and, uh, and leading up to that too, leading up to the Shah entering the United States, uh, we had interactions with the Iranian government where the Iranian government told senior members of the embassy explicitly that if the Shah were admitted to the United States for whatever reason, that the Iranian government could not guarantee the safety of the embassy. You know, yeah, and I got ahead of myself a little bit here. I should have said that the the uh, storming of the embassy was in response to the Shah being admitted into the United States um, for you know medical reasons. Uh, supposedly, he was taken to a hospital in New York, uh, and. But I didn't know that that warning was actually given ahead of time. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and um, the uh, I was at another meeting much later after the uh, the Ayatollahs had taken over, not long before I uh, left for Iran, and uh, it was a senior level briefing and. Part of the briefing was James Bill, this professor I told you about who talked about a 10% chance. Well, by then, the 10% chance had already happened. But another person in the briefing was the former CIA director and former ambassador to Iran, Richard Helms. And um, Dick Helms, by that point, was a, pl- a paid lackey of the Shah. And uh, he was talking about you know, what the prospects were and whatever. And someone raised the possibility that if the Shah is admitted to the United States, even back then, this would, would have been what March or April, that, uh, there would be a price to pay. And, um, the, uh, and, uh, Richard Helms's reaction was, well, you know, uh, in a post Vietnam era and, uh, we need to, you know, pull up our socks again and be willing to take some casualties for the uh, benefit of U.S. foreign policy. And I'm sitting in the back row, and I'm I'm sorely tempted to wave my hand and say, "Hey, wait a second! I'm <laughs> one of those casualties that you're so glibly talking about." Yeah. Would you like to talk to my mom? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, so now the day the embassy falls. Oh, and this is an important point too, actually. We just touched on it briefly, but I need to uh, really uh, drive this one home. And um, that is is that we had no clue how sick the Shah was. The Shah knew how sick he was. Yeah, he kept it secret. Yeah, no, we were absolutely clueless. Uh, So when it came to the fact that, and, and I mean, when he first raised the possibility of going to the United States for medical treatment, um, there were, there were certainly people who said, this is just a ruse, you know, trying to get around whatever, you know, limitations we have or whatnot. Uh, and we had no idea how sick he was. And of course he died while I was being held, you know, he, he died in, uh, in the summer of 79. But, um, as a result of that, the U.S. intelligence community created a specific unit whose sole responsibility was to monitor the medical condition of foreign leaders, particularly foreign leaders in, in countries that were unstable. And uh, years later, I was, assist, I was uh, uh, staff assistant for Paul Wolfowitz when he was the assistant secretary for East Asian and Pacific affairs and the Philippines was in the process of going through instability and, uh, and revolution. And, um, we were 100% on top of Marcos's physical condition, Marcos's, uh, kidney problems, the fact that he'd had at least two kidney transplants, et cetera. So, I mean, there was a whole, huge shift as a result of what happened with the Shah in Iran. When we came to dealing with Marcos in the Philippines, there were any number of things that, that we, that were sort of lessons learned from what uh, happened in Iran. And one of them is that we really know, have to know what the physical condition of this leader is. And we did in the, in the case of the Philippines, uh, we had a very good handle on uh, on how sick Marcos was. Mm. So now, um, what do those moments look like when you realize the embassy is under siege? Yeah, what we were told. So the, the, we start having demonstrations uh, after the Shah is admitted into the United States. Uh, in a funny way, some of them were almost um, sort of accidental. So we were located a block and a half away from a soccer stadium and there would be a soccer game. And afterwards, as they poured out, uh, they would be coming around the American embassy and they'd take, take a couple of turns around the American embassy shouting death to the USA, death to Carter, etc., and then wander on. There were also organized demonstrations that happened during the day. And what we were told, and once again, this is, uh, one of these places where the uh, what I'm told and what actually happens 
works to my disadvantage. What we were told was that if a demonstration was going to happen on any particular day, that they would notify us in our homes and that we would stay away from the compound and, uh, and let things play out and, uh, and whatever. And on, the, on November 4, what happened was I got into the embassy and uh, met up with uh, one of the young Iranian uh, women employees who was really happy. You know, she was really, this was a great day for her. And I said, what's going on? And she says, oh, there's going to be a huge demonstration, so we're closing the consulate, so no work today. And my immediate reaction was, what am I doing here? I'm not supposed to be here if there's going to be a demonstration. And so they kept us there, and uh, and I always knew, I had quite a number of Iranian friends, and uh, I knew that if there was going to be a problem, I would be able to uh, sort of slip into the crowd find some Iranian friends of mine, keep in contact with, with Washington and find some way to get out, just like the one group did with the Canadians. Sure. Yeah. And so the fact that I was on the compound did not make me happy. Uh, the compound, it occupied an entire city block. It was huge. And I mean, it was an, it was a, it was a thorn in the side of the Iranians, which is one of the reasons why I was telling the political council, why are we here with this massive presence. It's only an irritant. I was in the consular building, which was in the, in the back of the property. It was sort of on the, on the, uh, back street side of the compound, whereas the chancery was on the main highway, uh, street. And so a lot of the focus of the demonstration was on the chancery. And at the time, the charge, a security officer, and the acting deputy chief of mission were down at the foreign ministry trying to get some help. And uh, we were in contact with them, contact with the chancery. And at one point when it was obvious the chancery was going to fall, they told us to try to make it out back and try to get back to our houses and, and try to carry on from there. And so we split up into smaller groups, and the group that had five of the six people who made it out with Argo were in the group ahead of me, and I was in the last group, and we made it about, we were headed to the Consul General's house, we made it about two blocks away, and a uniformed member of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, turned us around uh, by firing a... Uh, a G3 automatic rifle above our heads. Uh, and it Jeez. makes up, it, it's loud, it's impressive. And so that turned us back. So the, the idea that this was a group of students acting on their own, no government support, whatever. I mean, from the first day that was obvious, not true. Because once you got outside of the student demonstration perimeter, you were, you had revolutionary guards who were, uh, enforcing the uh, the hostage taking. So I got turned back to the chancery, uh, and um, we were being held there for uh, a couple of weeks. At one point, they split us up and sent us around to different houses around Tehran because they were concerned that there might be a rescue attempt. And then they reached the conclusion that. Uh, the Carter administration just sort of didn't have it in them, and they brought us all back to the compound. And then it was in um, in April that uh, there actually was a rescue attempt. And there we got spread around all around the country uh, in order to prevent any other attempt at a rescue. We were finally brought back but placed in different te- different locations in Tehran in July. and uh, And all of this time the Iranians were keeping us from any information which they felt might um, relate to our captivity as a way to keeping us under control. And uh, so we didn't know what had happened in April, which caused us all to be moved until I'm reading a letter one day from a very nice schoolgirl 
maybe fourth, fifth grade, something like that in the middle of the country. Seven pages of really nice, homey, you know, here's what the class is doing, and this is that, and this is that. And on page four at the bottom of the page, it says, oh, and we're sorry, the rescue attempt failed. So evidently the, the censors didn't bother to read the whole letter. They just got to a certain point where they got bored and they said, okay, well, we'll let this one through. Uh, but yeah, that was how I found out about the rescue attempt. So aside from um, the schoolgirl's letter, how much information were you able to get your hands on as far as the United States response, how, um, how the larger world was interpreting these events? This was kind of funny because um, while we didn't have specifics, we would get letters from family members who would say, this is a big thing in the United States. This is the big deal. Everybody cares about this. It's on the news every night. And, you know, people are really pushing hard and whatever, which is exactly the kind of response, of course, that I asked my father to generate. And my father was one of the leaders in the television and media efforts. So he, he was very active in the media. But they were telling us, you know, our relatives are writing letters telling us this. And to a, to a person, we're reading them and saying, yeah, I believe that. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, nobody cares. I mean, we're a, a bunch of, of striped pants diplomats in a Middle Eastern country that most people have never heard of. And nobody cares. And so it wasn't until, uh, until we were released that we realized uh, what an incredible impact this had had on the United States. Uh, there was first this huge welcome that we got in Wiesbaden at the Air Force Hospital there. And uh, then we, while we did the medical review in Wiesbaden, we were watching videotapes of all the news coverage. They had it on a loop. In a, in a central area where you can see day by day. I mean, they really were. Every, you know, this is day 257 of the Iran hostage crisis. And so that was pretty impressive. And then we flew, uh, we met up with our immediate family members at West Point. We flew to Stewart Air Base in New York. And we're driving from Stewart down the Hudson Valley in, in the middle of forest in January, snow on the ground, middle of freaking nowhere and this route is is lined up with people in parkas and snow coats and whatever holding signs welcome home hostages and you know yellow ribbons and u.s flags so uh so while we were there nobody really believed that there was a huge outpouring of support and and we were all i was very cool we were all very surprised to, uh, to see the reaction we got. And I think this is a, I, I don't know whether historians actually appreciate the significance of the hostage crisis. There's actually two pieces. One is the hostage crisis marked the end of the Vietnam War period. For a long period of time, the U.S. had been viewed as being the equivalent of the Soviet Union and uh, the U.S. military was, in a sense, looked down upon. Uh, there were plenty of people in Europe, and, and, it, and it bled over to the United States saying that just that, you know, it's the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, and, and neither side is good. They're both evil. And here was a case where we were in Iran, and we were trying to make a relationship with the new government and uh, the, there was no ulterior motive visible. And um, the actual attack on a U.S. embassy, which is supposed to be inviolate, just struck everybody in the United States as this is it. No, actually, it's not really true. The United States really is the good guys, and we really are being subjected to an unjust characterization as being evil. And so it really ended the, the Vietnam era. I, a lot of 9-11 had a, a very similar effect, uh, but that really, the, the end of the Vietnam sort of malaise and disdain and whatever uh, really started in 
in the Iran hostage crisis, and of course, it led to the election of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, that's a fascinating perspective. I've never actually considered that, that that would be an, uh, you know, uh, an event that when you go through the history books, you know, you have this period to this period. And then, yeah, the, the hostage crisis is the turning of another page in, in really world history. Um, and so you went right where I was going to go. The 444 days was up at the on the very last day of the Carter administration, um, if I have that correct. Yes. Did you... Was there a sense that the Ayatollah was out to end the Carter administration um, because, you know, it's well, Carter's gone now. We can release the hostages. Uh, it's uh, it is a little different from that. One of the things, as I said before, that they were doing was they were preventing us from accessing any information that they thought that they thought would affect our uh, being held hostage, our situation. Well, what was funny was they got caught up in their own propaganda. And their own propaganda was, it doesn't matter who the president of the United States is because the United States is controlled by the CIA. And so (laughs) we're coming up on election day and they're still saying that, you know, doesn't matter who the president is, so it doesn't affect you. And so they were perfectly happy to tell us that Ronald Reagan had been elected president. And our reaction was, bags are packed, it's time to go home. You know, we knew <laughs> that the election of Ronald Reagan meant that the hostage crisis was going to end, one way or another. And so... Um, that was when the Carter administration started negotiations and we saw the Algerians and uh, the uh, uh, Algerian Red Crescent Society and all of these things were happening and there were um, negotiations going on, etc. But uh, it was clear that the Iranians were afraid of Reagan and afraid of what he might do for good cause, for good reasons. And so um, they uh, made the best deal that they could under the circumstances, and the Iran and the, and the Carter administration actually uh, granted a number of concessions, although what was funny is that the agreement on property and settling the issues of claims against each other was actually came out more favorable than we had expected, even if the Iranian government had had not taken us and uh, had had normal relations with us. When it came down to the very end, they uh, told us we were set to go uh, uh, the day before the inauguration, and uh, and then that got delayed. And it's crystal clear that the reason why they got it got delayed. It was one last slap against President Carter uh, by the Iranian regime. They were not going to release the hostages until Carter was out. Uh, purely vindictive. It was a way of of rubbing Carter's nose in it. That that's the sense that I took away too, just because of the timing of of those events. Now, one question I did have on here to ask you, and I feel awkward asking it, is. Um, what your treatment was like under Iranian captivity. And it's, you know, it's like when you're a hostage, you're a hostage. But, it, it you know, if there was a uh, a hotel website where you could rate your <laughs> your hostage experience, I'm curious as how you would rate that as far as their treatment of you. I was a, uh, a first tour, young vice consul. I didn't have any connection. I literally didn't even work in the Chancery Building and so um, my treatment, I was, I was young, not much older than the, the people who were, were holding us. And so my treatment was, as, as these things go, relatively good and, or, you know, not as bad. Certainly other people had a much, a much rougher time than I did. And uh, so uh, the big thing is being, is, the the big things are being separated from your family, being losing your freedom, right under any circumstances. So that that ratchets it up to a fairly high level, 
I was subjected to a mock firing squad once, and uh, I was put in solitary for confinement for a couple of days. Did you know it was mock when they stood you up for it? Oh, no. Nope. Wow. No. Uh, and, um, but uh, there was uh, there was one fellow who spent uh, most of the time in solitary, which is uh, not a lot of fun. And another one who spent half the time in, in uh, what they called punishment solitary, where it was just him a blanket and a, and a mattress and a towel. And that was it. No books, no other ways to, uh, to entertain himself or whatever. So when you get home, um, you obviously reconnect with your family and your loved ones. Um, I'm curious as to your career trajectory after the hostage crisis, after you get home and what something like this does to you as a person and your psyche and preconceived notions you have of the world, I imagine may have changed coming out of something like that. I was, uh, once again, I'm, I'm young, fairly adaptable. And, uh, my priority when I got back was to be back overseas on assignment before the second anniversary of the takeover. And so the State Department was basically telling us to, you know, take as much time as you want. Uh, we'll count it against your leave. And when you run out of leave, we'll give you administrative leave or whatever. And I took a month or two, but then I headed into my uh, assignment officer's uh, office and said, you know, what do you got for me? And, uh, and he was kind of surprised and, uh, well, you know, take another, take a break, take another couple of weeks off. And I, you know, I've already planned on doing that, but, um, you know, what's available. And so, uh, he sent me up with a, an assignment at the U S mission to the organization for economic cooperation and development in Paris. And, uh, so I got out over, I got French language training and was back overseas, uh, by September of, uh, of 1981. Wow. That's and incredible. I, well, and I, the, uh, um, I was, my father was a university professor and I once told him, I said, um, I need to explain to you what I think about working in the for as a foreign service officer. I said that if I were independently wealthy, I would pay money to do this job. It's that interesting, that rewarding, uh, etc. And there are people who do. There are people who raise hundreds of millions of dollars for the opportunity to become an ambassador somewhere. And my father's reaction was funny. He says, well, you know, I've never been able to quite put it that way, but that's exactly how I feel about teaching at a university. And so, uh, and so that's, uh, that's, the sort of how and why I continued my career. And it wasn't without, it was not without uh, excitement. So for example, I was in Malaysia, which is a, it's not an Islamic Republic, but it's a Muslim country at the time of the Gulf War. And, uh, and this is another one which drove my, my mother crazy was <laughs> uh, I spent my last overseas tour as the provincial reconstruction team leader in Karbala province in Iraq. And Karbala province is noteworthy because it's the host to two major Shia shrines. And so oh, that's wow. how I, I wrapped up my career. So now I read that you um, were in the, uh, you, you helped the Obama administration as an advisor to Iran um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, for me, I, this, this is a history podcast and, and my fascination is always history, all things history. And so what, you know, when I look at, when I see Iran in the headlines, I, I can't help but think of like, you know, the Persians and the Achaemenids and Cyrus the Great. And like, you know, to me, it's not just this past, you know, 50 years or so of Iran, it's, you know, 2,500 years of Iran. And so I'm curious when, when you are advising a a president or an administration on things like this, 
how much does the historical nature or significance of the country come into play in in how you offer advice? Well, the real question is how much uh, significance of the historical concept, con, um, construct, et cetera, take into place in the minds of your listeners. Because if it doesn't, then it's pointless to offer it. And the answer is almost zero. Uh, so the, uh, uh, the Obama administration, actually my last assignment in Washington, my last uh, full assignment, was as the director of the Office of Economics and Assistance for Iraq. And uh, it was clear that the Obama administration had no real clue uh, what the significance of, of our relation with Iraq was, of what the significance of Iranian influence in the Middle East. And um, they were, they weren't, they were not in a mood to listen to much of anybody's advice. Yeah, and I think, like I said, just coming from a historical perspective, anybody listening to this who hears that most of the time the person you're advising is not interested in the history, uh, <laughs> it's really depressing because that's it, it's, a, it's a psyche of a nation, right? It, it shapes everything moving forward. Um, I, I don't think, even though it's a different regime, I just... I don't think you can take away 2,500 years of history and pretend like it, it never existed. Um, so uh, I, I guess my, my final question here is I, we're a little over time. I really appreciate you um, being generous with your time here. Uh, my, my final question I'd like to ask is we're, this is going to be released in January. We're recording this in November um, of 2020, and Iran is back in the headlines. Um, and I'm curious what your advice would be to – Whatever administration we're going to have moving forward, how do you how does the United States of America um, deal successfully with Iran moving forward on a grand scale? You don't have to get into specifics. Well, I would recommend to you it's some years old, but if you look up the Washington Post, uh, I did an op-ed there where I discuss this question in larger detail. I'll give you the uh, the Cliff Notes version. The problem with our relationship, well, in fact, there was a, uh, a, uh, a writer, uh, Trita Parsi, who was Iranian-American, who wrote a book, uh, and it was called One Throw of the Dice, something like that. And his main thesis was that um, the U.S. had one chance to establish a cordial relationship with Iran during the Bush administration and the Bush administration refused to take him up on it, which is crap, okay? Um, since the time of the takeover, the United States has been throwing the dice so many times, it's a surprise we don't have carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> Even while I, this one I only found out about five years ago, it would have pissed me off if I were a much younger person. Even while we were still being held hostage, the Carter administration was negotiating with the Iranian government to reopen the U.S. embassy. Oh, well, that had to be devastating to find that out. Oh, yeah. And, and then there were other attempts, some of them public, some of them uh, that have never been uh, released to the public that I, was that I am aware of, where various administrations, Republican, Democrat, whatever, have gone to the Iranians and tried to reestablish some kind of a of a relationship with them, and all of these efforts are doomed. And the reason why every time we make this effort, we telegraph to the Iranians that we need them more than they need us, and so the Iranians are are. Uh, bizarre merchants, okay? Once you telegraph that, you're screwed. I mean, you're not going to make a, any kind of a decent deal. Uh, to give you a perfect example, when the, uh, when the Iranians finally caved and agreed to the negotiations on what eventually became 
the JCPOA, at the first meeting, the Iranians said that eliminating all enrichment was off the table, that the Iranians were not going to agree to any plan that didn't allow them at least some enrichment. And the whole point of the sanctions, which the UN had agreed to and everything, was that Iran was going to stop enriching uranium. And the U.S. should have gotten up and walked out of the room right then. But instead of doing that, not only did we continue the negotiations, but we went out in public and said that the goal of the negotiations is that the Iranians end enrichment, and the Iranians went out in public and said, we're not going to reach any agreement that doesn't permit us to enrich uranium. And the U.S. lied about it. The U.S. lied about, about the idea that there was some possibility we were going to negotiate an end to enrichment. And once again, the origin of that from the Iranian side is that the Americans have, have let us know that, that they need us more than we need them. And it's tough, but the reality is, is that we're not going to establish a, a meaningful, cordial relationship with Iran until the Iranians not just reach a majority, but reach a consensus across all of the factions that a relationship with the United States is valuable. And when I came out, someone asked me how long, you know, did I think it was going to be before we had relations with Iran? And my reaction was, you need to think about this in the terms of the, the, the length of time it took after World War II for the United States to establish relationships with communist China. And in, in fact, we've gone longer than that. It's, it's actually been longer. It, it, we made a relationship with communist China faster than reestablishing a relationship with the Iranians. And patience is difficult, but the, the way to deal with the Iranians is to make it clear to them that they, that they need us more than we need them, and it's up to them to come to us and make concessions. You have to be willing to walk away from the table. It's a fundamental rule of negotiation. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. So, Don, I uh, really appreciate you coming on this show um, and being the brave soul that you are to <laughs> do my first interview here with uh, Written in Blood. Um, your your insight is extremely valuable, and your um, what you went through for the 444 days is incredible. And um, so... I really, really appreciate your time. Is there any place that you'd like to send people if they want to uh, read any of your, your works or, or articles or anything like that? Where would you prefer uh, people go? Yeah, the best source. I, I do, uh, I've done television interviews, so uh, most of them on Fox. Uh, you can find them under Donald Cook, C-O-O-K-E, and uh, on Fox News. Um, but the, the best one, would be to look up the uh, Washington Post op-ed that I did. Oh, it looks like six, seven years ago. It's still uh, very current, uh, very topical today. And uh, and please ignore the headline. Headline the headline writers are the bane of the existence of reporters <laughs> and college columnists. It says something like, "Iran held me hostage back then, and now." Something's holding me hot or I'm holding them or whatever. <laughs> that was really terrible. But the article is good. Mr. Don Cook, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I consider it truly a treasure to be able to listen to firsthand accounts of history. Those moments are too few. If you enjoy Written in Blood history and think it's worth at least a dollar, you're invited to become a patron of the show. You can head over to patreon.com slash history. Not only will you get episodes a little bit earlier than everybody else, but you'll also have the awesome satisfaction knowing that you're helping me fund this show in terms of research material and uh, the hosting costs and all the other costs that are associated with hosting a podcast. 
And if you could, I'd also appreciate a rating or review wherever you listen. Those ratings, if you notice, at the bottom of wherever you listen to podcasts, there'll be a couple of shows that they recommend you also listen to. Well, those shows are usually populated by ratings. It's an algorithm. So the more you rate and review the podcasts that you love, the more other people will find them and listen to them. So as an independent podcaster, we really appreciate it. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. Or you can message me at Twitter. My handle is at SDeJulius. Or you can message me on Facebook. I'm really responsive there as well. And so this has been Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And I hope your new year is going well for you. See you later. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.